walled cities, fortified cities. The archaeologists dig them up in Central America, in Europe, in Africa, in the high, high mountains of Central Asia. These forts are often the only evidence that a community of women and men and children and boys and girls at complete with their oxen and their sheep and their donkeys ever lived and loved and broke bread. So now we dig up their forts. Most of our North American cities never had walls. It wasn't because the locals didn't feel threatened. It's just because walls didn't protect anyone anymore. Those, when those cities were built, there was the cities had just become too big, sprawling to hide behind walls and armies. Armies in those days had, when our country's uh, cities were built, the, the, the cities were, the, the armies had such big guns, big cannons, that they just could blow any wall away. If you want to see wall, city, you can go to Castle Island, you can see. You can know that what was called Fort Hill actually was fortified at one time. During the U.S. Civil War, soldiers from the north and the south dug huge holes, sometimes as 300 feet deep to bury themselves in because the cannon fire was so intense that they had to go down that far. Cities were no longer safe behind walls and so they would put the troops out, out of the city to fight their wars. Nowadays, city councils just don't inspect the ramparts anymore. Mayors no longer review the troops of their own militia. City governments now adopt other cities and call them sisters. Now you've probably heard that line from that old spiritual. It goes like this. Maestro. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Now that's the biblical book of Joshua, and we have a story of the conquest of a Hebrew tribe coming into their land of promise, and the fortress city of Jericho is being attacked. And we read, on the seventh day, they rose early at dawn, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And it was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout! For the Lord has given you the city. A little later, the text read, As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. And the people charged, straight ahead into the city and captured it. And they devoted to destruction 
at the edge of the sword, all in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. Something tells me that we're not going to include that text in our Sunday school curriculum. Jericho lost its walls some 3,000 years ago, maybe more. Archaeologists digging at the site say the city had stone walls as high as this church. And it's 20 feet thick. That's some shout. Some of you have probably visited a walled city like Quebec City. A beautiful city perched high on cliffs overlooking the St. Lawrence River. Its old fortifications and walls are now a tourist attraction. People walk around and sit on cannons. Tourists look at the ramparts, look down on the fields, look down on the fields where young men from the British colonies once died trying to storm up those hills onto Quebec City. So no, we don't build stone walls to defend our cities anymore. Runaway slaves looking for their promised land are not camping outside the gates blowing their trumpets. So I'm going to ask you a question. No walls. Do you feel safe? Do you feel secure? Most people don't. Many people today feel very vulnerable, exposed to attack. Many of us sense a deep, deep down in our bones that we can be attacked anytime, that we're vulnerable. Even if our neighborhoods are safe, we know that just looking at television and reading papers and that many human communities experience violence and mayhem. Violence is close at hand if we listen to our local news. It's right over in Dorchester and Roxbury where uh, Tina Cherry's going to be preaching here next week talking about that. Violence close at hand. The instinct to build walls to erect defenses is as strong now as it was to the fathers and mothers of Jericho when they saw Hebrews on the horizon, when they tried to hold their fort against the oncoming people who claimed their land as a promised land. It's been interesting to reflect on what our various forts look like. Think of yours. Think of your fort. Do you think of the physical aspects? the bolted and secured home, the alarm system, the rolling up the window and clicking on that button? Or is your defense system psychological precautions? Do you visit some neighborhoods in the city, but not others? Do you talk to some people, but not others? You watch some television, but I try to avoid a lot of it. I know I have my set of defenses. I remember that bully child when I was little. 
who was just a little older than me. And what a difference two or three years will make for a child. It's, he would slap me and taunt me. And I remember also much later when I was an adult, the gang of children, children, 14 or 15-year-olds that beat me and robbed me when I was waiting for a bus stop at 10 p.m. one night. I just come home from a meeting, going home from a meeting to address that community's problems. I was an organizer and the bus was a little late. I also remember the splint across my nose, the gift of an outraged young man who didn't like outsiders coming into his Italian neighborhood. I'd gone to a religious festival, the Feast of St. Anthony, East Boston. Tell you something, being assaulted causes one to internalize that and take certain precautions, become wary, become wary of young men on street corners. But I could build my whole life around defenses, making them stronger and stronger till I lived in an illusionary safety. So do you have your defenses you call peace? Do you have your own personal fort? Is that your way of responding to a violent, threatening world? The Hebrew prophet Jeremiah complained of false prophets. He cried, peace, peace. There is no peace, he said. 26 centuries later, there's still no peace. For the most part, we don't think about it. We just want to believe in the security of our defenses, so we call our walls peace. But there are wars and rumors of war, Syria, Afghanistan, Palestine, the streets of Boston. The violence is all around us. The news reports of killings, fights, domestic disturbances, domestic disturbances, that's what the police in Cambridge go out at night to stop. And we pray for peace. We sing songs about peace. We have a lot. We sang a song just for now about peace. Most everyone, everyone says they're for peace. But why aren't we moving toward peace? Let me suggest one reason. We have institutionalized violence. And we've come to accept organized, institutionalized violence as a given, as the way it is. It's just built into our acceptance system. That's the way it is. We accept wars and preparation for war as beyond our control. And we see the, the preparation for war as somehow like a wall for Jericho. If we're ready, we'll be defended. We come to accept police forces armed to the teeth and prisons are necessary for social control and we have institutionalized our walls and we see the various defenses as somehow a solution. We hope and pray that our walls will hold, that our own ramparts will not be breached. 
And we know every now and then they get breached. We say we're for peace and we institutionalize violence. Now many will protest. They'll say, Clyde, we've got to have our defenses. Just for now. Maybe later. We must defend ourselves in our community. War exists, crime exists, violence is out there. We need a strong defense until we have peace. When we have peace, we won't have it. But now, until we have peace, we need a strong defense. So I think the structure way of looking at this is, is that peace becomes a dream. It becomes like, well, let's, let's have another song about peace. Well, we're going to sing another song about peace right after the sermon. More walls, more defenses. Let me argue the complete contrary. The complete contrary, it is foolish to continue living with institutionalized violence. Humanity has lived behind walls too long. In fact, if we look at it, we can probably date the time where the archaeologists would tell us this kind of stuff just became a habitual thing. So humanity wasn't always doing this always. And so we're called to work to end the institutions that perpetuate violence. And to do that, we have to actually talk about what they are. We have to imagine for a moment and picture in your mind what the institutions of violence, what pictures do you get? Think What institutions, what are those institutions of violence? Until recently, I thought of the institutions of violence as all out there. The military, the international terrorists, the industrial complex of munitions and defense, prison system, television, movies, comics, Hollywood, organized crimes, the gun lobby, out there. Round up the usual suspects. Bring in the violence ones. But there was something missing. Me. You. I had not seen how the institution of violence was out, uh, wasn't just out there. I did not see how I acted and how we all acted to institutionalize violence. How we acted, how we did it. Now I'm beginning to see how we're involved. And working with others on the problem of institutionalized racism, I encountered a definition of institutions that revolutionized my understanding. So let me share it with you. You might have heard it because we have a transformation team here that does a lot of hard work. Institutions are relatively stable arrangements and practices through which our collective actions are taken. Again, relatively stable social arrangements through which our collective actions are taken. Now, that's a big breakthrough for me. I realize that institutions are not things out there, but they are social arrangements that we as human beings, me, you, and all the other human beings on this planet, have created. 
And they're stable because we just keep doing what it takes to sustain them. We keep doing it over and over again. And we're trained from early age. It's not because we grow up at 23 years old and decide, decide to perpetuate violence. We're trained from so very young to do this. It just We just sort of graduate into, into adulthood as people who have already played those games. Those games. We're trained from early on to behave in ways that sustain institutions and train others to sustain them too, to sustain them in return. And we kind of hold each other responsible for sustaining the institution. It's like a perpetual motion machine. They're stable because they're based on our habitual ways of relating to each other. That stuff we talked about earlier about avoiding some neighborhoods and clicking our defense systems, all part of that. They're stable because we're based on our, because we do them. We collectively recreate them. We, you, me, humanity act repeatedly to form these patterns. We internalize the psychology of the institution in our day-to-day -day living and we reproduce institutions. Thank goodness we do, because they're good institutions. Looking at the choir. <laughs> like Unitarian Universalist congregations. It's a good institution. It's good to have a habit. <laughs> Community and family and, and, inst and, and, and recreating and schooling, all of those institutions are done because we value them and we know that you get up in the morning and you hold your young one's hand and you take them to school. Country fairs on a summer day, good institutions, good institutions like picnics. But there are also institutions that are destructive. Institutions of abuse and destruction, the whole complex of horrors that make up racism and sexism and homophobia and nationalism and class exploitation are based on things we're trained to do and overdo and do again and we internalize our patriarchy, we internalize our violence, we internalize our race concepts. War and violence have been perpetuated and collectively how we relate to one another. And our walls, those psychological habits of defense that we erect for our protection, our walls are institutions of violence. Because they're constructed on distrust. The paradox is this, our defensive responses are habits of the heart that reproduce and perpetuate violence. Perhaps, writes Jim Wallace, we are coming at last to see that our deadly enemy is fear. Too frightened to try peace, we build walls. Too frightened to try love, we build walls. We recreate and recreate hostile ways of acting toward one another. And out of our defenses, we perpetuate violent division, and that leads to more violence. And 
How many billions of people are there on the planet doing this right now? Jim Wallace believes that our hostility arising from fear has wired the earth for genocide. We cannot conquer the enemy, nor can we beat this foe, for it is ingrained in our souls. We can only be delivered from it in the form of trust. Of trust. Wallace asks, are we capable of receiving the gift on which our cure depends? Are we capable of acquiring the courage to trust? It seems to me that there is an institution, there might be lots of institutions, but there is an institution that can help people acquire trust. Unitarian Universalist congregations therefore have a special contribution to make. If people would like to move beyond walls, they won't until they feel safe. They will cling to their defenses. Instead, they'll build, we need to build institutions that help people live in peace. We need to build institutions that tr help people learn the habits of peace. People will not give up their defensive walls until they've learned, really learned, in their bones, a better way of relating. We need communities of relationship that go beyond violence, communities such as this congregation that can nurture nonviolent, affirming relations and nurture understanding. And we're doing a little about that now. Institutions that help us transcend our borders, moving beyond walls that divide us and out of our congregations, and I hope this idea spreads not only to Unitarian Universalist congregations, but I'd, I'd be willing to share it with the Baptists. And the share it. Out of our congregations, we can create peacemakers. After much thinking over a lifetime of peace activism, I've come to believe that grassroots concerned people who organize are, all, are the real vehicles for change. Organized people acting in community are the real vehicles for change, for creating a world community of peace and justice. For peace and justice, I dropped, I swallowed that last line. Our congregations can become violence-free zones, members covenanting to work for nonviolent solutions through conflict resolution and other skills. We could think of small group ministries exploring nonviolent communication, exploring restorative justice ministries and nonviolent direct action. Our congregations can become safe congregations that work proactively to address domestic violence and child abuse as part of their ministry to families. And we can live on our raising, live into our slogan of Black Lives Matter by developing civilian review commissions of our police departments and ending mass incarceration and substituting drug rehabilitation programs for the present 
criminalization of narcotics. Violent ways of being in the world are learned, and they can be unlearned. We can help people move beyond their walls. And they can only do that in a community. But if Unitarian Universalists are known as the people that not only affirmed and promoted the principle of world community for peace, liberty, and justice for all, but also are the people who work for it and live for it in their lives and live for that, that goal was their passion, imagine that, they, that there were so many communities that if that was our reputation in the world, to build stable relations of love and trust, nurturing peacemakers. Our Unitarian Universalist heritage asks us to go beyond walls. Our gospel of transforming love calls us to bind up all brokenness and overcome all division. And to that call, let us answer, Amen. Number 153, for those who are already guessing that was a wrap-up,